All right. I am very excited about today's show. If you like United States history like I do, you are in for a real treat. And if you're not sure, I encourage you to stay tuned anyway. My guest today is Walter Starr. Walter is an author and former lawyer with several major works under his belt. His first book was about little-known John Jay, a founding father and revolutionary leader of the United States. His next book was a biography about William Seward, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State. And next week, Walter's third major biography will be released. It is called Stanton, Lincoln's War Secretary. Much of Walter's research was done here at UCI's Langston Library, and Walter will be doing a book talk at Langston Library this coming Wednesday, August 9th, 2017, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., with a book signing and reception to follow. Please give a warm cyber welcome to Walter Starr. How are you today, Walter? Just great. Fantastic. Well, the stage is yours, Walter. We can't wait to hear about your new book. Please tell us all about it. Well, who was Edwin Stanton? Why, why was he important? Why was he interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, he was the Secretary of War uh, during the Civil War, and he remained the Secretary of War through the presidency, or most of the presidency, of Andrew Johnson, so the first years of Reconstruction. So he's important because he helps to win the war. Shortly after he died, uh, one observer said that if you had to name three men who made the most difference for the North, they would be Lincoln, Grant, and Stanton. And mm. I agree with that. Mm. So that's the why he's important. I know a fair amount about the Civil War. It was a long, grueling war. There were ups and downs. Who knew who was going to win? Was it ever was Lincoln ever questioning whether he should be the guy? I mean, Oh, indeed. Um, During the cabinet crisis of late 1862, when um, a delegation of senators came to the White House and said, look, you've got to remove Seward, and Lincoln believed that that meant that several other members of the cabinet would resign, Lincoln said to his private secretary, "If if I thought there was a way that I could resign, I would do it, but I don't see how I can do that. Wow. Yeah, no, there were very dark moments for Lincoln and Stanton and the other northern leaders where they, in their heart of hearts, had doubts, although their their public pronouncements are as as stirring and positive as anything Churchill said in the depths of World War II. Hmm. How does Lincoln team up with Stanton after the election? Well, it's a really interesting point because Stanton is a lifelong diehard Democrat and Lincoln is the first Republican president. And in those days, there was even more of an expectation than there is today that a party would be rewarded after an election with not just all the cabinet positions, but all the way down to the postmaster. You know, that was the system. Everyone of the losing party was out. The Mm -hmm. winning party, uh, there was a famous saying at the time, to the victor belong the spoils. So the the very word we use, bipartisan, was not part of American political vocabulary until much later. Hmm. So it was quite unusual, unprecedented really, for a Republican president to name a Democrat to a senior position. But Lincoln wanted to signal that this was not a Republican war, this was a union war and that he was willing to work with people of whatever party in order to win that war. And indeed, what we think of as the Republican Party restyled itself in 1863 for the the next few elections. It was called the Union Party. I didn't know that. What in 
Stanton's background prepared him to be a Secretary of War. Is he prepared or is he learning on the job? A mixture of both. Kevin, he, he has not had any major administrative experience before he becomes Secretary of War. The one thing that I think is the closest parallel is actually here in California. He is sent here in the late 1850s on behalf of the federal government to handle some major land cases arising out of the confused and questionable Mexican land titles. Uh, he spends almost a year in San Francisco uh, and he has to assemble a fairly large staff. He assembles dozens of binders of Mexican land records because his system is basically to prove that certain claims, including a claim to essentially half of San Francisco, are fraudulent because they don't fit the pattern of all the other records. And so to do that, you've got to basically compile a complete set of the Mexican land records and know exactly what a standard, legitimate Mexican land document looks like mm -hmm. to say, ah, these are forgeries because the seal is different. So that organizational effort in which he was quite successful, he prevailed in both the cases in which he was involved, I think was an indicator to Lincoln and others, this is a man who can organize. Interesting. What are the darkest days of the Civil War? Ooh, there are lots, yeah. but I think the summer of 1864, paradoxically, the election is coming, and the South thinks that if, if it can just get the Democratic candidate elected, well, there'll be some kind of a negotiation. In some way, the South will survive. And that's actually what lots of, that's on the Republican, or sorry, the Union side, that's the argument. No, no, you cannot possibly elect General McClellan because he will negotiate with the South. You will lose at the ballot box what you're winning on the ground. But in the middle of 1864, they're not winning on the ground. Grant is stalled in front of Petersburg. It seems like Sherman is never going to take Atlanta. And then... Then that telegram arrives in Stanton's office. You know, Stanton's office is the hub of the, the Civil War telegraph system that says, we are in Atlanta. Mm. And, and a day later, the more even more quotable version arrives from Sherman saying, Atlanta is ours and fairly won. And Stanton has a system, which he uses for those, all those telegrams, of relaying the news to the press. Not every scrap of news. He edits and but messages like that, we mm. have Atlanta, mm -hmm. um, he gets out to the press almost instantly. Um, and that is a critical moment, perhaps the critical moment um, of the 1864 election. Mm. Where was the telegraph office? Was it there at the White House? or No, there was no telegraph whatsoever in the White House. So if Lincoln wanted to communicate with a general or a governor, he had to trot to the War Department, which was roughly where the, uh, what's now called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, what used to be called the Old Executive Office Building, sits. You know, it's walking distance from the White House. And according to both Lincoln's aides and Stanton's aides, Lincoln would walk that walk from the White House to the War Department early in the morning and late at night, and not infrequently he was there at midnight or 6 a.m. to keep touch with what was going on on the battlefield and to send messages. Lincoln, after an initial reluctance, Lincoln was not reluctant to communicate directly with generals to seek information and to give instructions. With the end of the war, where the Union has won, 
What was was it the feeling of what what do you think Stanton's views were? We we know a lot about Lincoln's desire to unite the country was was Stanton completely on the same page or It's hard because you know the gap between the day when the news arrives that the Union has captured Richmond and the death of Lincoln is only a few days. Yeah. So it's hard to know exactly what Lincoln was thinking and what he would have done if he had lived. And there are certainly some signs of tension in those days between Lincoln and Stanton. So to take one concrete example, uh, Lincoln, while he was down in Virginia, had spoken with some Virginians and said, look, you know, if the folks who used to be the Virginia legislature, the folks who call themselves the Virginia legislature, want to come here to Richmond, to gather and give instructions to the Virginia troops to disband, I won't object. And when Stanton heard that, he went ballistic. But he didn't—he couldn't say anything to Lincoln because Lincoln was down in Richmond and he was up in Washington and he didn't want it. So, and not long, but when he returned, the sources are very clear that they had some heated discussions. And within a day or two, Lincoln, it didn't work out. The, the Virginia legislators wanted to negotiate and by that time, Appomattox had occurred. So Lincoln rescinded that offer. But that's one indicator that there probably, if Lincoln had lived, I think there probably would have been some tensions between them, although they were both smart, adaptable people. I think they would have worked it out. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to do a book on Stanton? Well, I did the book on his colleague and friend, Seward, another member of uh, what's called Lincoln's team of rivals. And, and Seward was the Secretary of State. Correct. And as I was thinking about the next topic, I threw out a couple of ideas to my editor and my agent in New York City. And none of them, you know, they weren't terribly excited about any of them. And then I sent my agent a note. Well, what about Edwin Stanton? And he came back sort of like that old Peanuts cartoon. That's it. <laughs> really? Yeah. He thought because he hadn't been done in a while, but also because he's both light and dark. I mean, there's some very dark aspects of Stanton's life and character. And my agent thought, and I've come to agree with him through the research and writing, that that makes for a more interesting book. Hmm. What did you discover in your journey of writing this book? Where, did you have surprises? Oh, many. Um, it, it took me quite a while before I sort of realized, you know, you just can't make him always truthful. You just have to admit that from time to time he told white lies or a little worse than white lies. Oh. And I had very much hoped that the one quote for which Stanton is known is that at the moment Lincoln dies, Stanton supposedly says now he belongs to the ages. The quote is in Bartlett's familiar quotations, for heaven's sake. It certainly is a powerful poetic moment. It, it is, but as best <laughs> I can tell, it didn't quite happen that way. And how do you tell? Well, the first time those words appear in print is 25 years after Lincoln's death. Gotcha. Now, admittedly, the person who writes them, John Hay, was there on that day. But if you think about... And John Hay was one of Lincoln's secretaries? Correct. John Hay was his private secretary, much younger, but he actually lived in the White House with Lincoln. He was probably, in some sense, the son that Lincoln lost when his son died in the midst of the war. Um, he spent lots of time with Lincoln, knew him intimately. Mm. 
uh, goes on to become uh, Secretary of State under uh, Theodore Roosevelt, a, a wow. fascinating guy. Wow. Um, yeah, no, just an amazing career all the way from Lincoln to Roosevelt. Yes. Yeah. Right. We probably wouldn't have acquired the Panama Canal without John Hay's excellent diplomacy. But if you think in your own life, Kevin, about things that happened 25 years ago, now admittedly, the death of Lincoln, you would, you would remember something like that, but would you remember every word? And then there are much more contemporaneous documents. There are detailed accounts in the newspapers. I'm not quite sure how the newspaper reporters got them because they weren't in the room. But mm. obviously some folks who were in the room talked with reporters and gave them detailed descriptions. There are letters that folks wrote, and none of them mentioned Stanton saying anything. And so I'm compelled to reluctantly conclude that in all likelihood Stanton did not utter those famous words mm. on the morning of Lincoln's death. Mm. What else strikes you, you know, that was a surprise? I hadn't really appreciated, perhaps because none of the other authors who've tackled Stanton have been lawyers, I hadn't really appreciated how good a lawyer he was. You know, how, not just in those California land cases, but in the famous Wheeling Bridge case, disputing the bridge that was constructed from uh, Wheeling, what we now think of as Wheeling, West Virginia, at the time Wheeling, Virginia, over into Ohio, which Stanton fought back and forth to the Supreme Court a couple of times. What, what was the issue? The issue was that folks in Pittsburgh, which is where Stanton was living at the time, were concerned that the bridge was going to essentially choke off their access to the rest of the world via the Ohio River. Mm. At the time, there were no freeways. There were very few railroads. So everything that moved in Western America moved by river. The, the bridge was reasonably low, so when the water was high, sometimes the steamboats with the tallest steam stacks couldn't get through. And as Stanton pointed out in the brief, well, that's the current technology. What happens when the stacks get to be 10 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet higher? I mean, the concern was that essentially Pittsburgh would lose its dominant position in the, the sort of the so on in behalf commerce, it's, it seems legit I mean, yeah no it, it and they they sort of won and then they lost and then the wheeling folks went to congress and got a statute it's a really complicated fascinating case that i cover in the book but you know he defended a congressman accused of murder and there's no question the congressman killed the man in cold blood in lafayette square in washington broad daylight wow uh, um the defense was temporary insanity and Stanton also argued the defense of the family because the, there's also no question that the congressman was having the congressman's wife sorry was having an affair with the, the <laughs> murdered man it was a wow <laughs> wow right but you know all of these cases again perhaps because I'm a lawyer and even even sometimes when he's not technically working as a lawyer. I, I told a friend today, I said, you know, that night from the time he learns that Lincoln has been shot through Lincoln's death, he's functioning as a lawyer. He's not in tears. He's not raging. He's not sitting by Lincoln's. No, he's figuring out who killed Lincoln and who stabbed Seward nearby and sending out orders to track him down and arrest anyone who might even just have information about where to find the assassins, and ordering guards, and then keeping the nation informed. I mean, it's just a blizzard of paper that comes mm. out of his pen that night. And so... Very interesting. Excuse me for a, a moment, Walter. If you're joining us late, I'm speaking with award-winning and New York Times best-selling author Walter Starr. 
Walter will be giving a book talk on his new book, Stanton, here at UCI's Langston Library next Wednesday, August 9th, 2017, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. with a book signing and reception to follow. Walter, I, I know you were, were originally a very successful lawyer with assignments in Washington, D.C. and throughout Asia. Tell us about your transition to becoming an author. Ooh. Well, one night, warm night like this, actually, in Hong Kong, I was reading a book, and I finished it, and I put it down, and I said, ah, that wasn't very good. I could do better. And then it was as if there was a little speaker up in the corner of the room that said, so, Star, if you think that, do it. Write a book. And I was like, oh, that's impossible. I can't possibly write a book. I'm, I'm in Hong Kong. I'm very busy. I'm on a plane to Taipei and Tokyo. But I started to kind of think about, okay, well, if I did it, mm -hmm. if I did it, what would I write about? And what, you know, what kind of a book would it be? And who would it be about? So it was... You know, it was a little bit of an epiphany, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and I didn't abandon being a lawyer. I w continued working as a lawyer all through researching and writing my J book. And indeed, I still do a little bit of legal work from time to time. But I, I've gradually shifted, so I'm much more of an author than a lawyer these days. And how did you pick John Jay originally? It was a similar kind of experience. I was working on a fascinating guy, Gouverneur Morris, who... Um, was a, a sort of a minor founding father, if you will, but um, really interesting guy. He's the author of those immortal words, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. And I thought even in Hong Kong, I could find and read some biographies of his best friends like John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, Robert Livingston. And when I went looking for the best recent biography of John Jay, it was from 1933. And it wasn't that good. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, you know, I could do this. You know, maybe I can't write a perfect biography of John Jay, but I can write a better biography of John Jay. And surely, you know, the, I mean, this guy, Jay is, you know, if you had to name a top 10 founding fathers, Jay is definitely on the list. So he definitely, you know, deserves whatever I can do for him. Yeah. Now, I had never heard of him before. He's a bit of a hidden player, I think. He is. It's a, a little unfortunate. In part, it's because he, partly because he himself was a little quiet, and partly just because historians, for whatever reason, have chosen kind of not to emphasize him. So, for example, if you had watched the wonderful HBO documentary about John Adams, John Jay comes on for the briefest of moments. You would not know that the trio that negotiated the treaties that ended the Revolutionary War, really the greatest treaty ever in our history was negotiated by Franklin, Jay, and Adams. And you would certainly not know that the first draft of the treaty was drafted by John Jay. Hmm. So, yes, there was a little bit of, how to put it, fighting against the grain to get people to sort of recognize his contributions. But he is the principal author of the first constitution of the state of New York. He's an author of some of the Federalist Papers, along with Hamilton and Madison. He's a major player in ensuring that New York adopts rather than rejects the constitution. He's our secretary for foreign affairs, so effectively our secretary of state for five years. He's the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. So even before John Marshall gets on the scene, John Jay is sort of setting the, setting the course. What is the Supreme Court going to look like? Is it going to, you know, 
give advisory opinions to the president in the way that a British court would do? No, John Jay, John Jay is the one who decides. No, that, that's not our job. We decide, as the Constitution says, cases and controversies, not abstract legal questions. So, you know, a long and important career, and he's a really good man. You know, he's honest and upright and faithful to his wife <laughs> and all, all those things. Gotcha. When you go about writing a book... How do you first approach it? Are you doing a lot of research? Is there things that you just instinctively already know that you're writing down? How, how do you approach it? I start with what has been written about the guy before. Um, so, you know, I get the, the biographies, say, of Stanton, and I read those pretty carefully. And as I take notes, I create two documents, one I call chronology and one I call bibliography. So chronology is just dates and events. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the Stanton chronology, it's so large it doesn't fit on one document on my computer. It's, it's roughly a million words. Wow. Right. Uh, and then the bibliography document, isn't it, it doesn't start as a list of books I've read. It kind of starts as a list of books that I should read. And those would be not just books about Stanton, but, say, books about the Methodist Church, because he starts life as a Methodist, or books about Kenyon College, because that's where he goes to college, or books about early Columbus, Ohio, because that's where he kind of begins, mm -hmm. you know, living and working. I mean, it's a wide range of books and articles and letters and newspapers that you have to pull together in order to really get as close as you can to what happened day by day in the life of your subject. Do you find that you fall in love with your characters? That is certainly a risk, particularly when you're dealing with heroic Americans mm. um, or, or near heroic. So one has to guard against it. Mm. Um, Interesting. Uh, it was easier with Stanton because there were these moments when I would read something and I'd say, no, that isn't true. I know that that's not true because, you know, I have this other document from the same day. But even, you know, even Jay and Seward, there were times when I had to be critical of them. I mean, Seward, for example, in the process of getting the Alaska Treaty through the Senate, almost certainly was aware that the Russian minister was bribing, sorry, getting the Alaska Treaty through the House of Representatives, was aware that the Russian minister was bribing members of the House. Wow. Wow, right. That's not something we typically think of as heroic. Uh, similarly, the, the... So, like, he was bribing him in terms of, like, you know, we, buy, buy, buy. Wow. Correct. Correct. Um, th this was not uncommon at that time. I mean, there's a famous, a wonderful quote from um, one in the Johnson impeachment. One of the lobbyists whom Seward hired in order to lobby the senators said, don't worry, Governor Seward. He was, he was always called Governor Seward because he'd been governor of New York. Don't worry, Governor Seward. You know, if the argu legal arguments don't suffice, money will do the trick. Wow. In terms of your work on these early American leaders, do you feel like there's any analogies or anything that can be held up today, especially in these divisive, polarized times? 
Well, certainly, I, I just alluded to impeachment, and certainly I think that would behoove all of us, since it would appear that impeachment is going to be on the political agenda one way or the other soon, to read up on the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the impeachment of Richard Nixon and the impeachment of Bill Clinton to kind of learn the history that's already happened um, so that we, you know, both, you know, those who are planning to defend the president, there's some tactics that they should be thinking about and vice versa. But I also feel like, you know, a lot of friends come and say, oh, you know, the American history has never been so low. And I say, well, spend some time in the Civil War. Spend some time with President Andrew Johnson before you say that things have never been so bad. Walter, I can't believe that that analogy is actually uplifting. <laughs> There's much to be rediscovered and learned. And I so appreciate you being here today. I'm sorry that we have run out of time. I look forward to reading your book and hearing you at the book talk on Wednesday, and I really appreciate you coming. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Kevin.